Well, hey there. Welcome to this episode of Uncommon Conversations, where we talk to community leaders about how they build and support their communities to deepen relationships, build better products, and drive business impact. I'm Rebecca, the head of Common Room's Uncommon Community, and I'm super glad you're here. Learn more about the Uncommon Community at commonroom.io slash uncommon, or accept this cordial invitation to join me and more than 1,000 other community builders in the Uncommon Community Slack. And if you're looking for the best way to help activate and grow your community, get started with Common Room for free today at commonroom.io. I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to Uncommon Conversations. I'm super excited to talk to our featured expert today, Richard Millington, who is the founder and managing director of Feverbee for over 11 years, has been working in community for over 13 years. And he's the author of not one, not two, but three books, Buzzing Communities, The Indispensable Community, and Build Your Community, which we'll get into each of those a little bit later. But first, let's begin. Hey, Richard, thank you so much for being here. I'm super excited to have you. (laughs) And honestly, it's not every day that I get to have a conversation with someone who I recently saw on the cover of a magazine. (laughs) (laughs) So can you tell us a bit about your day job and how you you came to be on the cover of Community Leaders Magazine? And uh, we'll kick off from there. Yeah, I wish I had a good story about the magazine. So let me focus on the day job first. Um, what I do and what my team does is helps organizations develop the best communities they can. And essentially, there's three, there's three parts to that. One is that we do the research. We understand what members want. We understand the psychology of what they need and we follow that data. Two is the community experience, the technology piece. How do we design a community experience that's going to be world-class and really incredible for the, org- the organization and their members. And the third part is the business goals piece. What does an organization need when they create a community? And a lot of our work is lining those three things up so they work. And when you get that right, the community experiences that you can create are incredible. So on a day-to-day level, I work with clients. I work with um, my team to do that. We go through the process. We help clients to build the best communities that they can with the resources and the teams that they have. Um, the cover of the magazine, I genuinely don't have a great story. Um, there's an org- organization that reached out and said they wanted to put me on like the cover of the magazine. I was like, I haven't been on the cover of a, ma- of a magazine before. And it sounds like a cool thing to brag about. I'm sure my mom is very proud and bought lo- lots of copies. Um, but yeah, there was no bigger story. Um, they just, um, yeah, they just uh, were kind enough to put me on there and it's quite flattering. And yeah, I'm grateful that they did. It is a flattering photo. I've been in a magazine before, but not on the cover, but my mom still did buy like 10 of those and frame them around the house. And um, it's not exactly a flattering photo either. Like it just didn't somehow, yours yours turned out a lot better and I'm very excited for you and your mom. <laughs> you know, parents are amazing like that. I used to play for like the worst football team in the Southeast of the UK or like soccer team, as you as you would say. And there's one game where, where we like lost a game. 10-1, which for like a soccer score, I don't know if you know much about soccer, yeah. that's an embarrassing defeat, like a 10-1 yeah. defeat. But I scored the the one goal. So my mom has like copies of that newspaper article, like with my name as like the goal scorer beneath the scoreline. Um, parents seem to really think that traditional media, you know, really means a lot. They still quite respect it. And it's quite sweet as well. It is. It's very sweet. It's um, thanks to moms and grand- grandparents <laughs> everywhere, Absolutely. even print in print. Um, well, before we dive too far in, I I want to ask you to make me a promise, and I'll ask you what that is first. Uh, if maybe, but I'll, I'll ask you what it is to so you can decide if you want to make this promise. But 
the promise that I'd request of you is if you will tell me if any of my questions could be <laughs> more specific. And recently on your blog, you wrote about the relationship between question specificity and increased value. Um, and I loved that. I, I love being able to have these interviews um, and I love people asking folks questions. And I think though, you're totally right, right? There's like a, there's a direct relationship between what you can truly ask and then the value of the answer you can truly get and exchange with someone else. And so I, will you promise uh, do you, Richard, promise to let me know if a question could or should be more specific? Background behind it, like, like with my post, it comes from what I'm experiencing with clients and some of the issues that come up and maybe some of the advice that I give them and also the advice that they give me as well. I learn a lot from the clients I have. Um, and I was working with an organization in the scientific field and we just launched a new community for, for them. And some of the questions that the team was asking to try and get activity going was very generic, you know, how did you become interested in this topic? What do you think the future of this topic is? And, and you know, it's okay, but they're opinions really. Like all you get are opinions and opinions are fun and everyone can give an opinion, but they're not that valuable over the long term. What does matter more in a community is experiences and expertise. That's what we want to get out. And that's one of the major reasons that we create a community. Sure, you can have a sense of belonging, but getting that experience and expertise, that's like the critical part that makes it all connect together. And so if you want um, experience and expertise, you've got to, got to ask a specific question. So instead of asking, you know, what do you think the future of, th of this topic is? What are the specific things that you're challenging, that you're dealing with right now? What are the specific things that you need information about? What's the problem? And defining that really specifically, because then people can give you much better advice. And I think the challenge with a lot of the communities out there today is that they get a lot of people asking questions that aren't specific enough. And if you look at what the best communities in the world do, like Stack Overflow and a few others, they spend a lot more time trying to make you get very specific about the question you're asking, what you've tried so far, what your current workaround is, because um, then people give you much better answers. And that's where the real value of a community, especially one based around exchanging you know, information and knowledge, that's where it really begins to thrive and become an incredible asset for everyone. Uh, well, I feel like you are a pro at uh, answering questions, that's for sure, because I was super excited to ask you if there are communities that you see model this really well. Um, but it sounds like, yeah, you just already answered that. Is there anyone that you'd like to add to that in terms of like uh, places where we should look to say like how, who is nailing this idea of specificity? Yeah, I think Stack Overflow is a world-class um, example in that sense. That's because they've got a custom platform and they can design it for their audience and developers a more specific use case. Um, who else is doing it well? Um, I think the Okta community is doing it well. That's OKTA, uh, Okta. Um, that's also one, one, one of my clients. If you look at their ideas sec section, for example, especially, they do an incredible job with this as well. And I think a lot of great communities are now doing a lot more work to help people ask better questions with nudges that appear alongside the um, question or ghost text. Um, those kind of things tend to be really useful. Yeah, it'd be interesting. It's almost like a Grammarly, but instead of fixing just the way that yeah, you're exactly. the structure, it's like yeah. a questionly, you know? Um, yeah. I, I think you'd be quite good at that if you want to have an offshoot to an offshoot of an offshoot, um, helping people <laughs> form their questions just a little bit better. Um, <laughs> So as the founder of Feverbee and the author of Build Your Community and two other books, as we as I had like introed you in the super long intro, um, you've helped more than 
300, more than 310 organizations, and that's like Apple, Facebook, Google, the World Bank, SAP. Um, and as you explained, right, you bring like the, the relationship with psychology to build thriving communities. You've trained over 1,200 people and community pros. Um, that is a very diverse list of organizations, and they serve strikingly diverse purposes. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about, regardless of the industry that they're in, do you find that each of them come to you with like a common set of problems or is like the very specific pattern where it's like, doesn't matter if you're SAP, doesn't matter if you're Apple, doesn't matter if you're the World Bank, like you are still coming. And that turns out at the very basic foundational level, you have the same questions that you're asking. Mm. There's something that unifies them in terms of wanting or needing to build community. I think there's maybe three types of clients that we work with. The first one is an organization which is launching a new community from scratch, and they are lucky enough to realize how much that they don't know. And that's really useful because then they get help and then we can guide them through the entire process to make that community work. Um, those are a lot of fun uh, to work on. The other type is a very large, mature community that's been around for a long time, has probably millions of mem members around the world, like a lot of the examples here, and they're looking to take their community to the next level. And often that means um, figuring out what the goals of that community are. Very often they've been chasing engagement and trying to get as much activity as possible. And so how do you build out a strategy which says, you know what, engagement is good, but at some point, that's going to peak because not everyone in the entire world can join your community. Or if they do, then that's when the level of engagement peaks. Um, and so then it's more about building out the whole strategy of processes to take the community to where it needs to be and make sure it's, it's supporting the organization's goals as closely as possible. The third type, which is really interesting, is when they've created a community and it's not working or something isn't working out, there's a problem, and then we try to resolve that problem. Sometimes that would be a technology issue or sometimes it would just be a lack of engagement. Um, they can't seem to get engagement or sort of sustain activity. Um, so that'd be the first way I tackle this. The other thing I'd, I'd point out, and I think for anyone building any kind of community today is to figure out what, um, what business you're in really, like be really honest with yourself because in the community space at the moment, there's kind of a split and I don't often feel we're honest about it where there's some people that are building a community that creates an incredible sense of belonging between members. Um, and you see that with WhatsApp groups with your friends, a lot of non nonprofits also doing this. They create these communities where people really feel like they can belong and they can change and collaborate. And those kind of things are great. Um, and then there's the other, the other kind where it's all about the member experience or exchanging information. These are more like the business sponsored communities we hear a lot about where people generally, I mean, there are some exceptions that we can all name, but generally, people don't choose to spend their spare time participating in a brand community. They just don't. Um, I mean, people don't do that. But what they do do is they go to that community when they need help, when they need advice, when they need support. And so once we've realized that, we can think, okay, how do we make these communities the best places to give and share and exchange advice? And it's completely different from building a community where people have a strong sense of belonging and connection with one another. And I say it's very important here to figure out exactly what kind of community you're building, and then you can build out the strategy um, to match. And I think where there's a challenge is when people are confused about which business or which goal they're really, really uh, pursuing. So would you say too then that the, 
what a healthy community looks like or how you would measure each of those metrics is actually different on that fork in the road, right? Depending on which type of, if it's like a business product-based community. Completely, or, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if there's if you're building a community for to facilitate a sense of belonging amongst members, um, then you're usually looking at things like having rituals and traditions and making sure every newcomer gets this amazing personalized welcome and they're introduced to other members that can be there. You might be having these shared experiences and events. You might be focusing a lot more on how members are feeling within that community so they feel like the building those bonds of trust and support. When you're building a community, say, let's say a major tech brand, like a lot, lot of our clients, it's more about this thing isn't working and I need to go to a place to get help. And so you have 90% of the people there, they'll ask a question, they'll get a response and then they leave and they won't come back until there's another problem that they need help with. And there are some things you can do there. There are different kinds of communities within that, but fundamentally people come to those kind of communities because they need information from people that they trust. And that's a completely different strategy because now you're looking at how do you optimize for that? How do you optimize for getting the best expertise in a community? How do you optimize for people sharing information? And here you're looking at how you improve the taxonomy of the website, for example, or how you improve the structure of getting good questions in the first place or rewriting the subject titles or, um, or uh, making sure you have a, a small group of top experts that are responding and answering those questions or escalating issues that don't get a response. And so, it's a completely different set of tactics and, and processes. Um, and so it's important to figure out which one you're in because the strategies are completely different. Ooh, I'm so interested because I think um, there's like a, a level two of, of at least a hope for convergence, right? That like this uh, product-based brand community will also be something that where people still feel a sense of belonging, like almost like a, um, a bit more convergence, like get the answers they need, but also feel like they want to return here. Do you see that also, do you see people wanting to go in that direction, but then every, but then more often you see that trying to happen, and it just doesn't quite work, or do you see those having a confluence? So I would warn you that my response to this is a response that many people disagree with, but I've done hundreds of surveys of clients at this point, um, literally hundreds of, of surveys, and I mean of each client. And that means we've gotten probably a million survey responses back. And out of all those 100 surveys I've done, I've never seen a survey that put um, sense of belonging or making connections with other people like themselves as one of the top needs. Every single time, it's quality information, useful information, useful expertise. And so you can name some examples of like cult brands, you know, Harley Davidson or whatever, um, Supreme perhaps, where people get really excited and they queue up outside the store and they genuinely feel a sense of belonging with other people that buy the same products as them. But I think there's more articles and books about cult brands and cult brands than themselves. And this idea that we want to belong to brands, um, the, it's arguing from the extremes. It's the, it's the outliers. And for 99.9999% of organizations, it's not relevant at all. If you go to your your refrigerator right now, or your fridge or freezer, and look at all the products that are in there, you don't want to belong to like you know um, your milk brand or your diet coke brand or um, your butter brand or your bread brand. Like, and that's just in your refrigerator. You don't want to belong to the utility companies that supply you. You don't want to belong to most of the clothing brands that supply you. I mean, like, so it's, and I think we need to recognize that. And also there's a moral perspective in this, is that do we want to rely on brands to give us a sense of belonging in this world? Do we? I'm, 
I'm not sure that we do. And I admit there's exceptions, but I'm not sure we do. I think most communities, if you look at the data, and we spend a huge amount of time doing this, they want information. And, and that's as valuable as anything else. I mean, there's, there's, some exception, there's some exceptions, especially like the nonprofit space, they do some amazing work like AA or someone, like incredible work completely at the different end of the scale. But for most of us, people want quality information from people that, that they trust. And if you have that as your North Star, you're going to be doing extremely well. There is so something that I really admire and love about you, and I I, I will uh, try to pull back like the compliments a bit, especially because I know I, I believe that you know you might be a little more dry on the British side. You're like stop saying nice things, <laughs> but you're no. No, you can like, go on, please. Go, go. <laughs> so you you run a lot of experiments, right? You get a lot of data. That's that's a whole part of what you do at Feverbee and how you approach your work. And you're known to advocate for experiments that prove the value of community, right? And to do that, you're like collecting data. And I think an example of this is something that uh, you have shared very freely and is like pinned to the top of your Twitter. Um, and you know, you're like, ad, you're like learning in public, teaching in public, all those great things. Um, but you have an amazing example of this pinned on Twitter where it could have been for one of the companies that was in the 310 that we mentioned above. Um, but for those who aren't familiar with your thread, I'll give it a pretty quick overview, and then I would love for you to dive in, into it a bit. Uh, but you were working with a tech client, and the executive team did not necessarily believe the stats they were seeing about the importance of community in terms of deflecting support tickets. So you did an experiment where you de-indexed the community from search. One, this is a bold move. Really admire and love it. Two, um, can you talk a bit about how you decided this was the right experiment, and then so I don't spoil the ending for people, what the outcomes were. And I, I think this relates so well to your, your like saying like, hey, that's nice that we want to do this fuzzy thing, but the data tells us something else. And so I'd love for you to even like maybe take this as an example of, of data gathering in terms of what people are looking for when they came to this tech community and then what happened when you de-indexed the community from search. Yeah, I respond to the first part of that. I mean, to say we do a lot of experiments is kind of funny because honestly, if it doesn't work, we call it an experiment. An experiment. Um, but hopefully, if it works, then it's just like it's like a best practice, right? Um, this particular example is a bit different. There's one. There's one or two other things we have done specifically as an experiment, but this particular example is a bit different. So this was, I think, uh, November 2019. Um, so we are working. I've, I just met with um, a new client um, uh, for for the first time. And at the end of the first meeting, we're sitting in the meeting room. Everything seems to have gone really well when uh, the VP of the customer experience, she turns to me and says, I'm not sure what the value of this is. And neither is like the exec team. But luckily, I'm prepared for this. So I give her the standard responses of companies that have built communities and thrived and all the case studies that we usually use and the statistics. And she's still not convinced. And so I say, well, the only way to really prove the value of your community is to close it down and see what happens. And I say that because I know, honestly, she's not going to do it uh, because it's madness to close a community down. You lose your top members, um, uh, people get angry, they can't find the community. But an interesting alternative, which we haven't really considered before, is what happens if instead of closing it down, you just hide it or you just remove it from search engine results. And this is kind of interesting because if you hide it from search results, it's like if you hide a pub from or a bar from, from a map. People that know it's there can still find it, 
But if, and if you don't know it's there, you don't know what you're missing, so you're not upset that you can't find it. And it's kind of the same, the same thing for search. The regulars can still know it's there and they can still participate, but we know that more than 90% or so of search traffic to communities comes from, 90% more of traffic comes from search. And so we did an experiment for four months where we removed it to see what would happen. And at the end of four months, I think it was June the 1st, 2020, you know, I'm typing in the data and uploading it, putting it from Tableau and the other sources to see what's finally happening. And when I click the OK button to see what's happening, what we saw was during those four months, I think, I can't remember the stats offhand, but I think the number of tickets in that community or the number of tickets that were going through to customer support rose by around 58%, I think. We noticed a sharp decline in customer satisfaction that was caused by more people trying to get through um, and having to wait longer on customer support lines. Um, and then we calculated it was, I think, 72% cheaper to answer a question via the community than via customer support. I think it's like $5 in a community and like $18 via the tra traditional support channels. And this is really interesting because finally we've got data that says if you close your community down, what is the impact of that? What is the value of that happening? And then we, we, we can multiply this by the number of deflected tickets, um, the number of people who don't have to contact support because they get their answer in the community. And I think that was 163,000 a year. I think that was the metric. Um, yeah, and that led to like huge cost savings. You can multiply that by um, the uh, cost saving of each ticket and get you know a multi-million dollar va value in saving on the community each year, which is kind of remarkable. Like it's a really remarkable figure. Yeah, and that's also, I mean, that is only compounded, right? Like the more features you add and the more that the community grows and the longer the company goes on and the more new users that are there, like there are just so many compounding factors to that continuing to be very important. And it's not, and it's not even that. I mean, there's two parts to this. One is once we know it's a lot cheaper to answer questions in a community, the question becomes, how do we drive everyone with a question to ask it in a community before contacting support? Like to right. me, um, Support is like phoning the police. It's like emergency support that you need right now because something is urgent or there's personal information that you need to share to get an answer. Everything else should go to a community first because it's cheaper, the, the quality of information is better as well, and the outcome is a lot better. And even this is only measuring community through one tiny prism, support. We don't know the value of people exchanging advice and ideas with one another. We don't know the impact on retention rates in that community. We don't know the impact on ideas that they're sharing that are then implemented in the product. We don't know about search traffic that comes in through the community and then some of them become customers or clients. I mean, so once you start multiplying it, you can see that actually having a brand community, a successful one, a good one, is absolutely indispensable. And it's mind blowing to me that I've had to say that I've been sharing this data for a while and still people don't seem convinced. Like they believe that the data is real, it's genuine. They don't think that we made that we made it up, but they still don't have trouble actually reacting to it and thinking, oh, it just makes sense to drive everyone to a community first. Um, it's one of the great mysteries in life that I'm hoping to solve. Yeah, you're still fighting the good fight. Um, yeah. So are there other experiments that you've come to love running? And I guess to put to use your words, experiments that have turned into best practices because you like random enough to be like okay and then i'm wondering if there's also any experiments that you've tried and you're like listen probably don't do this because it just really did not show us what we hoped to have seen from it 
I mean, it reminds me of when I was working at United Nations. Whenever we did something and it failed, we'd write a lessons learned uh, report. No one would actually read the report, but it was like our, it's like our, our website. Actually, it was like a lesson we learned. It didn't fail, it's a lesson. So calling something an experiment is a little bit um, saving face at times. Um, there's a lot of things we have tried. I think a lot of the techniques that people use for uh, when they welcome a newcomer and try and convert them into a top member, they don't work. I don't think most automated messages work at all. Like often when people join a community, they get a series of automated messages. And I've long had a hunch that they didn't have any impact. I've turned them off for a client or two and they didn't have any impact. Um, so that's one of the areas where I didn't have um, a big thing. We try like small things as well. Like recently we tried this option for a client where you can participate and not anonymously within a community. Well, it's like a button, you can click it, and if you want to um, participate anonymously, you can. And this is important if you don't want your brand or your name to be attached to information you're sharing, maybe you're worried about what your colleagues will think of you. Um, so that kind of option is really interesting. We're experimenting with that at the moment. We've got one or two other things on the go as well. Um, I think the big experiment, the biggest one, is moving from one platform to another. And very often people don't realize that they're replacing one set of issues with another set of issues. And a lot of the data that says that moving platform, it can have an impact. But often there's more fundamental issues that um, impact things more. So I'd be more cautious about expecting a platform change to have a massive interact, a massive impact on your metrics in the short term. That's some really helpful words because I think a lot of the uh, folks that we work with or talk to, right, are, are constantly trying to say like, oh, well, do I need to you know, level up to this? Or I've heard a few community members talk about how they prefer this m more, but is that really going to have an impact in the long term? And um, anyway, thanks for those <laughs> words of like experiments to best practices, or we'll see if it turns into a best practice or simply a lesson learned. Um, some more data that you shared, which uh, more numbers I will quote, is that in your book, uh, in your latest book, uh, Build Your Community, you ran a survey with community leaders and over 50% of respondents did not have a community strategy. Um, we have a live author Q&A with you. So I'm not going to go too far into the book, but I do want to talk about this a little bit. And that's like chapter 10 and you break a community strategy doc into incremental pieces. And I think it's really to help people where it's like if more than 50% of you do not have a strategy, like let me guide you through how to make one or else likely it's not going to end up being something that you can either prove value or that you know how to run effectively or that you can get other stakeholder buy in for or continue getting investment in. Um, and so these documents, uh, I think you call it a catalyst for action, which I really loved that type of phrasing around it. Um, they, at least in my experience, they take a lot of time, but there's also in my experience where you're like, I, I feel like I should be better at this. Like it should come faster. Like I should, I've done this before. Should I should be able to do it like really quickly. And I should be able to say like, yep, I took two days and like put it together and here's the outcome and it's going to be perfect. And then like you deliver it. And I think there's a real like reality or expectation setting to try to help uh, even someone be able to evaluate whether or not the time that it feels like they're spending on it is truly valuable. And so I'm wondering if um, rather than saying like, oh, I feel like I'm spinning my wheels or so I'm wondering if you can help level set around the type of time and the, the time that it takes to like gather that information, to build those internal relationships. Um, and yeah, if if you've seen enough people do this now or guided enough people to do it where you're like, hey, in reality, it will likely take between this and this amount of time to put together something that is truly strategic and helpful to be that catalyst for action in your organization. 
It's funny, like, I don't think I mentioned this in the book, but as part of the survey we did, um, I think I asked um, how many people, um, I think I asked people to rate their strategy skills on a level of like one to five or something. And most people gave themselves above average, like a 4.1 or 4.2, I think was what most people gave to themselves. And then the next question was how many people have um, created and executed a strategy for a community before? And it was about uh, 30 to 40%. And that's kind of amazing that a lot of people haven't done it, but they think they're still going to be really good at doing it. And I think we have a lack of respect for the strategic process and what it involves. And when we think of a strategy, we often think of the document, you know, like some grand document that we're going to create and we're going to present it to our boss and the boss is going to be like, yeah. And the boss is going to be like, this, this is amazing. This is, you're a star. And the reality is you might create that document, you'll hand it to your boss, your boss will put it in a drawer and no one will ever read it. And it begins collecting like digital dust from the moment you've created it. That's pretty standard. And that happens because you went into a dark room, your metaphorical dark, dark, dark room, you wrote your, your strategy in a weekend or a week or two weeks, or whatever. And then you expected everyone to behold your genius at doing a strategy. And that's wrong because the strategy Nothing in the, in the strategy should be a surprise to any of your colleagues. Like the way we think about a strategy and way that we approach a strategy is that the final document is simply the summation of all of the discussion and the decisions that we've been guiding people through up to that point. So there's no spark of genius. It's a case of bringing stakeholders together, bringing members together, doing interviews, working with them to understand what the pros and cons of the options are, working what those trade-offs are, understanding what the resources are, and pulling all that together at the end. And part of the strategic process is building that support for it. So the, so the strategy, you shouldn't have to build support for it. It should be based upon things you know that people already support. And I think people, um, I say people, I don't know how many, but I think often that's not widely understood. And in, and we don't have the right level of respect for a strategic process. So the way we typically go about this is that usually, um, and, I, and when internally this might be a bit bit quicker, but usually when we work with a client, it'll be an engagement of say three to four and a half months, that kind of level. Um, and we begin the first month doing the discovery phase, as we call it, which means we interview 20 or more members of the, of the audience. We do a survey of the audience. We um, interview as many stakeholders involved with the community as we possibly can to really understand their hopes, their fears, their concerns, their goals, or those kind, kind of things. We do an evaluation of the community. We look at all of the metrics, what's working, what's not working. Um, we look to see what the trends are, why things are the way they are. So we have very specific interventions that we think can improve things at the end of that. Um, and then we have a workshop where we bring everyone together to discuss our findings, gather feed, gather feedback, outline what the options are go, going forward. And then we hope either in the workshop or shortly after it to get a, um, an agreement of where we're going to go. And then we begin writing out what the best practices are to achieve those goals. And this is where we bring in examples. We make sure it's possible in the technology that they're using or they need a new technology. We recommend that. And the whole process is connected and driven by the data. Um, and then at the end, we have like the risk analysis and those kind of things. Um, and I think it's a full time job for that amount of time. And I think the reason why we get the clients we do and, and maybe I'm, I should be more hum humble about that, but I think it's because a lot of people are realizing it's not just about the expertise. I think strategy does require expertise, but the realizing it's about time. 
and it's very hard to fly the plane while you're still serving drinks in cabin. It's very hard to still be looking after the community, you know, and be trying to decide where the community is going because it's two completely different types of work. And I don't think people are very um, aware of the level of work it takes to do a strategy well, or the value of having a strategy of having everyone aligned and achieving the goals and all the best practices and a clear plan of where, where you go next, something that you can execute and you know it's going to work. Um, yeah, so I would say, it's, in my mind, it's a full-time job for a couple of months. Um, and if you can't do that, then hire someone else to do it or bring in someone that can do your job while, while you do it. Um, I think that would be the best way of going about it. Yeah, thank you for that level setting. I think um, I think so often you want to be like, oh, I can just I can just do it. Like I'll just figure it out. And I think you can figure it out. But like you said, you can't bifurcate your body into two separate entities trying to do two very different jobs. Um, something else that I admire about you, I'm going to say that again, and how you just described right these like um, sort of these different time frames, right? And you know when you go on if it's a three four month type of engagement, but you're able to break things out into incremental time periods. And so I call this, at least in my own head, thinking and uh, being a rubber band, right? Where you can have the rubber band this big and you can also stretch it out to almost this mm. infinite time horizon. And you're able to like see um, things on a timeline and, and it's flexible rather than just like a straight line. It is this thing where you can like grow and expand and then make it small again. And so you hold that rubber band, right? And you see the zero to three month plan. And then you stretch it to like, you know, nine to 12 months and then two years and three years. And I'm wondering if you can talk about some of the key milestones that that you, you have seen, at least uh, reflected in the communities that you've worked with. What should a community leader perhaps be striving for at, you know, a three month, a nine month, a 12 month, a three year type of, or is, is there any like unifying factor where you're like, this is something that you should be asking yourself at this point when you've been working on community? Um. I can't answer the question exactly the way you phrased it, but let me adapt it a little bit. Um, I love that. Thank I you. Think, Edit me. <laughs> um, the reason we structure the community strategies we have in a roadmap instead of just this is the final destination, but the roadmap is because A, clients seem to like that a lot more. And B, we found with almost every project we've worked on, people want to know what they can optimize right now. You know, with the time and the resources they have today, what can they optimize? And so we found more and more of that is what people wanted. So we began making that as part of the plan. And so a lot of our strategies come in the form of optimizing what you have now in the next zero to say three, three, three months, um, then upgrading. Um, this is where you make big change in the systems or the technology or, you know, whatever is the big changes to align with, with the long-term goal. That usually happens in the three to nine month, three to 12 month phase. And then it's like 12 to say 36 months, something the further out you go, the less realistic it becomes. But then it's like, what is the community at its full potential? What are the resources that requires? What are the things that has to be in place for that community to work? And originally we presented this as options to a client. At the workshop, we'd say, these are the options depending upon what your budgets are and what your tolerance for risk is and these kind of things. And more and more, they were saying, we want all, we want all three. Um, so that's why we began to structure it the way we do. We still present op options if there's clearly different audiences they can target or technologies they can use or goals that they can pursue. We still present them as options, but I think it really helps have a road roadmap in what we're going to do in the short term, the intermediate term and the long term. And I think that's a really good way of communicating what the goals are, when you're going to achieve them and what needs to be lined up way in advance. 
Yeah, I love that idea of starting with optimizations first too, because it also feels a little bit empowering when you're like, oh, I got to do this small tweak and it does feel so much better already, right? Yeah, and then you absolutely. get to build on that momentum. So we talked a little bit about uh, Build Your Community, which you published in April of this year, 2021, uh, but it's actually your third book. And so you wrote Buzzing Communities nine years ago in 2012, <laughs> The Indispensable yeah. Community in 2018. And so from 2012 to 2018, thinking about that like time scale of rubber banding, I'm sure that you saw the interest and understanding of community strength like transform a lot. And then again, from 2018 to now. And I'm wondering if you how you might describe the change you saw then and where you think community might be another nine years from now. I think it's really easy to um, to fall in love with the hype, like in any field you're in, like every field thinks that they're the future of any profession that they're in, right? Like it's, it happens everywhere. And so I always try to look at the field from the position of a cynic, you know, or a skeptic, you know, um, yeah. if you were skeptical about the value of communities in all organizations, what would I be looking for that confirm or refute my view? And so with questions like this, I think it's important to think about what would a skeptic say? You know, if you're saying that communities are going to be big and huge and they're going to be even bigger than what they are today, what are the data points that confirm or refute that? And it's actually really hard to get clear data on how popular a communities are um, and so I think all of us are going on fe feelings at this point um, so I bear that in mind so I think in 2012 when I wrote Buzzing Communities um, there were very few other consultants in the space there were very few other people doing this work and there were very few books like there were almost no books about um, how to build an online community at that point and the questions I was getting was, how do I drive engagement? How do I get activity? How do I get people to participate? And the book was very much about how to do that. Had an awful front cover. The font was ridiculous. There were lots of mistakes that you make with a self-published book. I kind of um, find it nostalgic now looking at it though. The cover sort of speaks to me a little. Ah, uh, you know what? It, it just made me laugh and I was running out of time. So I put that as a front cover. Oh, I really shouldn't have done that. Um, but then the book ended up being, um, a lot more popular like even now it still sells more than the other two books like it really blows my mind that's the case um um and so that was like every, everyone seemed to be always referring to that book for many years and i was quite um proud of that um around 2016 2017 it became clear to me that we were building a lot of engagement but we didn't know why like we had these communities filled with engagement but a lot of the organizations that were contacting me had no idea why 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 we what do we do with this engagement and so the indispensable community was about the strategy. How do you connect it with the business goals? What's the operational backing that has to be in place for this to work? Um, yeah, and, and that was published in 2018. And build your community was very much, um, how do communities work today? Like a lot of the tactics and things I used to believe in way back when I wrote the first book, I would caveat it today, like, like building a sense of community and buzzing communities. So I'm like, every community needs to have a strong sense of community, but the reality is that doesn't always make sense. Like if your iPhone breaks and you go to the Apple online community, you don't want to be introduced to everyone else with a broken phone. You just want you know, to get your issue fixed. And so I tried to write a more pragmatic book that focuses much on the operational side of um, building a community. And that's how the three things um, came together. And it's kind of followed my own journey as well, where initially communities were relatively small, not many people had them. And those that did have them just wanted a lot, a lot of engagement. Around, yeah, up to around 2018, there's a lot of discussion about how do you prove the return on investment? How do you measure the value of communities? How do you get that value? 
Um, and I think now it's more on the op the operation side. Like it definitely feels a lot bigger. There's more consultants in this space. And in terms of how my company is doing, it's bigger. The revenues are a lot higher. So it definitely feels like the space is growing, but I don't know how much. I would guess around over the last couple of years, maybe 100%, um, but there's no real baseline to compare that to. So do you think that you already perhaps foresee what the next book might be tackling, right? It's like, how do you even, like why community and how, and then how to engage now that I have it, and then how, the operations and the tool set and the technology stack perhaps behind operating <laughs> that community. And then it's like book four, do you already have like thoughts on where that might go? I think for me, I'm interested in what host community looks like, or what does it look like when you go beyond just community because at the moment a lot of my work is that there's a tab on the customer support page called community and you click on that tab and that's where my, my work begins i'm interested in that customer experience piece you know um i think more and more community is so inseparable from customer experience and customer support and customer success and so i think if there is another book and i don't know if there is it'll probably be more at that intersection not just focused on the community side but how it fits in with the bigger experience and how you deliver the best experience you possibly can. Um, again, I don't know if I'll write an, another book, but that's what's interesting me right now. Yeah, and I imagine you didn't, maybe you didn't know that you were gonna write a third. So like, I feel like there's still a fourth in you. <laughs> we'll see, we'll see. <laughs> Nearly a decade and a half ago, if I did my math right, which I always have to check myself when I say it out loud, you worked as an intern building online communities for Squidoo, which I think I'm also saying that correctly under Seth Godin, who a lot of people, um, you know, attribute, uh, like when they're like, hey, who's someone that has, you know, inspired you in terms of community building? His name comes up a lot. And I'm wondering what skills stood out to you then as, inval as invaluable, like the things that you picked up on your, like what you picked up there in terms of like building community and what some of those skills like, like, entered your brain then and have never left. Um, and so as brands invest in community and as experiments like yours continue to prove the community value, like what skills do you advise your clients to look for when they're trying to build their teams? Yeah, the experience with Seth, um, I mean, Seth is one of the few people I've met that I think is a genius, like genu genuinely has a way of seeing things in a very specific way. And so when I was pitching ideas to him or working with him, um, and it was only for a couple of months, I don't want to make this bigger than what it was. So, um, um, it was very much, he, he'd always be focused on the specifics. He had this amazing idea not to take some big grand plan, but to really um, think about the specifics. So who are the first 10 people that you will approach to join? What will you tell them? Why would they join? What would they do? And he is very much focused um, on getting the specifics in place and testing ideas, make sure that they work. Um, and I was very much in awe of that. Um, and for a long time, and even today, there's a lot of lessons that I, I uh, still, still use from that. Um, but it's interesting because I don't think I've really mentioned this before, but like, Seth was my idol back then, you know, like I was so in awe of this man. Um, and I still am like, I still, he's incredible. He even wrote like a um, nice um, forward or not forward, a testimony for like, the book. And so he's, he's so generous with his time. Um, but the project that I worked on with him failed. Um, and it failed because I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, and also it failed because 
I was too scared to ask for help. This is the lesson, the biggest takeaway it wasn't about communities, although I learned a lot is because I was so in awe of him and I so wanted to him to think I was good and, you know, I so wanted to impress him that I was scared to ask for help, which is kind of the opposite now. I know like now he would have had any issue of me say, hey, I need help. Can you give me advice? You, you tend to think more high, more highly of people that do that. And, I, and it took me a long while to realize that. Um, and so maybe it's not a lesson for every day in the community space, but yeah, I learned how to ask for help. I learned how not to be in awe of like people that you really admire. Um, I think that was one of the biggest lessons and it still proves the value today. Um, second part, part of the question is what skills do you think clients should look out for in building their community teams? Um, I think people build teams without knowing what skills that they're looking for, for sure. And I think you have to build out your team from a perspective of what you want people to do and then find the right skills to mix and often people don't. So they'll end up hiring someone to build a new community from, from scratch that has never done it, but has worked for a big online community. And they don't realize how hard it is when you don't have millions of people visiting your site every single day. Um, so the kind of skills I would look for is usually at the beginning, I think you need an operations person and then a community management person. Someone that can handle the operations side, be it like the systems, handle the technology, take care of all the all that stuff. And someone that's going to be in the trenches, engaging with members, um, making them feel that this is a place they want to ask questions and get responses. And so there's a lot of skills we can talk about here, but I think the biggest one for managing a community is someone that cares, like someone that genuinely cares. And it's amazing how quickly you can tell if someone genuinely cares or not. And I think figuring that out, that'd be great for the operations side, get someone with operations experience. Um, the community side, you can learn and you can teach and you can pick that up, but having someone with operations experience really helps as well. Uh, something that I admire about you is your ability to recall multi-part questions, <laughs> which is very <laughs> impressive. Um, and thank you for sharing that like humbling uh, I appreciate that maybe you hadn't really like revisited that for a while, but that you still shared it with us around like, oh, well, <laughs> that it failed and that I need to be able to ask for help. Because I think that is a perpetual lesson for anyone who's like, well, I was hired to do this role, so I should just know how to do it. And the answer might be like, well, that's why even at a meta level communities exist, because like, sure, you're using this thing, but you still have questions. We all have questions. And um, mm -hmm. talking to the same organizations when they are trying to perhaps hire their teams, I'm wondering if you um, have an idea for where the community team should sit or do they ask you that right they're like okay now that you know we're hiring right. skills maybe we have an op person a management person but like is it marketing is it customer success is it you know the c level and i wonder if you have thoughts on that even from pattern matching from the clients that you've worked with of what has worked best in terms of serving a community ultimately yeah i think a lot of people say the community should be its its own team and sit within community and support to a c-level like um chief of community role or something the reality is that's like um arguing from the extremes again like, there are some examples of that but it almost never happens so most of my work um they report to success customer success customer support experience okay one more before we talk about uh who you chose to donate your own common support to but can you talk to me a little bit about what every community leader can learn from Gordon Ramsay? Most people are wasting their lives by not watching Kitchen Nightmares by Gordon Ram Ram Ramsay. It is like the most spectacular trash show that you can possibly imagine. And I love it. Basically what he does, he goes into a restaurant 
and he tells them how bad they are and then he fixes it. But the important thing to know, and this is why it's relevant here, is that what he does is usually reduces the menu from doing from the restaurant doing a lot of items to just a few. And the reason this is relevant is that I often feel we take a sim similar approach when we're advising clients. When we work with a new client, we often tell the person managing that community to just make a list of like what you're working on in any, any particular week. And they end up having this like massive menu of items that they're trying to do each week. Some community professionals list more than 20 things that they're working on in a week. That means they're trying to do four separate things each particular day. And that doesn't work at all. Um, and it's because they have a failure of strategy. They haven't decided what, what's important, what things really matter, so they're doing all the things. Um, if you get the strategy right, you often only need to be doing three to five things extremely well. And like a menu, if you do three to five great dishes well, um, then everything else becomes a lot easier. You can focus on what you're doing well. Mem members know what the community is for and what it's not for, and everything connects a lot better. So the lesson is watch more Gordon Ramsay in your lives. <laughs> Reduce your menu items and watch more Gordon Ramsay. Lastly, as promised, we're, uh, we'll talk about uncommon support. We're always really excited about it. We do believe that a community is stronger when it uplifts, uplifts one another. Um, and so I'd love if you could tell us a bit about the organization that you choose to dedicate your uncommon support to. And we're super excited to donate to them in your honor. I spent a year of my life, um, a year, year of my life working with the United Nations um, Refugee A agency uh, back in like 2009 or so and and it's amazing to me that refugees are seen as a problem and not an opportunity and they don't get anywhere near the level of support that they need and honestly that's my cause i don't talk too much about it but that's the cause i support so refugees international um or a similar non-profit in the usa that's probably the one i go for they do incredible work um and I think if we could just be more caring and loving towards the, re the refugees that have been through hell, the world would genuinely be a better place. Absolutely. We are happy to support uh, Refugees International. And um, thank you. Thank you for sharing that, for sharing that out loud with the community. And um, that it. That's it. That wraps up our Uncommon Conversation. Thank you so much for um, having me. Yeah.